today we are closing out our series called For the Life of the World. And for a lot of you, some of you have shared with me that it's been a lot to just process. And today is no exception. We, we are talking about the final element that we're going to be working on and then closing out the series at the same time. So, um, and, but if this is your first time with us, I'll catch you guys up on what we've been talking about. So, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of exile. What is exile? Exile is when you find yourself in a place or a community that is not like you. So in the, it's one of the big themes that starts early in the Bible and ends at the near the end of the Bible. Basically, the people of God, in the Old Testament, there were the Israelites, the, the Jews, they always found themselves living in enemy territory, people who didn't hold the same values. And I'm thinking, what is a good example of this? And earlier I mentioned that um, I lived in Northern California for about four years. Um, you know how hard it is to be an LA sports fan in Northern California? I heard a boo from the AV table. <laughs> it's really hard, okay, because here we're like, go Dodgers or Angels or whatever your favorite team is, right? We're talking about baseball now. <clears throat> Up there, it's not like go Giants or go A's. It's like we, vo we root for anybody who loves, you know, we root for the Giants and whoever is playing against LA. Like, they have a category for that. And they even have a chant, like, be LA, be LA. We don't have, like, BSF, you know, like, like, I don't know, we're probably a big threat to them, I'm not sure. But I found myself living in a community, because I live with some, with some friends, who are huge Northern California sports team fans, and I felt like I didn't share the same values of them, right? And so in the Bible, it talks about if you are called to be the people of God, and if you find yourself living amongst people who don't call themselves the people of God, what are you supposed to do? And we talked about how the past 250 plus years of evangelicalism, we did the wrong thing. What we did was we built up walls, right? We're like, hey, you can't come into our community and, and infect us with your, your values. So we created our own, you know, after you built the tall walls, you could create your own Christian version of, you know, like t-shirts, or you can make your own Christian version of music. You can make your own Christian films because we don't want to mingle with the people on the outside. But when we read through the scriptures, what we discover is that that's exactly what we're not supposed to do. But I totally understand right? Because we want to protect our kids from the bad influences of the world. So I totally get it, right? Like, let's build up those walls and don't let people into our households. I get it. But if you call yourselves a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself the people of God, then you have to make sure that you follow what God wants for us. And which is, like if you read through the book of Jeremiah, it says that we, when we find ourselves living in enemy territory, we should do everything we can to bless the community that we're a part of. Jeremiah 29 talked about this, that while we're there in exile, we should be planting gardens. And we talked about how garden is a symbol of paradise. We're supposed to be creating the ideal world for the people that we're living with, right? It says, go and mingle, share meals. Meal, eat. Sharing meals back then was considered one of the most intimate things you could do. Make the world a better place instead of building up walls. And you know what building up walls, you know what they do effect, like they're really good at? They're really effective at this. They're effective at making sure that you are not, you know, infected with the world's values, but it's also effective at making sure that your, your blessings and your values don't infect the people on the outside. We're completely detached from the world, and so we've been going the wrong direction for the past few centuries. And so the Bible tells us that if you find yourselves in exile, make sure you do everything you can to bless the community you're in. And so how do we do that? And that's what the series has been, been about. Well, I used the illustration of an orchestra, that God is creating this beautiful symphony in this world. 
and there's five sections in this orchestra. And the first section we talked about was relationships. We need to focus on relationships. How are we supposed to conduct our relationships? Well, we looked at the model of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They continually empty themselves to love on the other, but they don't have to worry about being left empty because the other part of the Trinity fills them up. So this continual dance where you're always saying, no, the, no, this is about you. And they're like, no, no, this is about you. And they're like, no, 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 this is about you. No, this is about you. And there's this continual thing, and it's through that beautiful dance that the world was created and the world was good. In other words, in your family, with the people you're living with, with your roommate, with your partner, whoever it is, if you continue to treat relationships like that, continually emptying yourself into the other person, the other person feeling you, if you keep doing that, you could create a beautiful world, a blessed world around you. So we talked about relationships, and that was the most important one. And then the week after that, we talked about work. How originally when God created work, it was not meant to be a curse. Work was good, and then it's after the curse entered the world that work became toil. And we talked about how when it comes to work, it's not just so that we could survive and we could feed ourselves and that we could have a roof over our heads, although that is the case today. But he said that when it comes to work, work connects us to the world that we're a part of. Because of the carpentry work you do, there's people who have homes to live in now. It's because of you, you're a waiter or a chef at a restaurant. It's because of you that there are people in this world who are getting fed, that they're able to enjoy the things that they eat. The work that we do is not just for us, but it's also for our community. Then the week after that, we talked about order and justice, that God loves order and justice. He intended the world to be shalom, a world that is, is it's like a holistic type of, of goodness. It's not, you know, peace isn't about just a lack of war or a lack of chaos. Peace in the Jewish mind is a world where everything is the way it's supposed to be. And, and we talked about how in order for us to participate in that kind of order, what we have to do is that we have to start practicing hospitality. Because when we practice hospitality, we start to see the image of God in the people who are around us. You know, like there's that person that I would never associate with, but as I was being with this person, I discovered that I see the image of Jesus in that person when they do this, when they do that. And because we see the image of God in the other person, we're able to love on them and make sure that they have the dignity that was given to them by God. So we treat people differently when we start seeing the image of God in them. And then last week, Pastor Stan gave us an amazing sermon about wisdom. That wisdom, apart from God, is just, it just inflates your ego. It becomes all about me. But with God in the picture, wisdom becomes about blessing the people around us. Wisdom is a thing that we need to have in our lives to take the normal things around us and make it into something that's better for the community that we're living in. And today, we're talking about the final section of the orchestra, which is beauty. Beauty. Now, if you're the kind of Christian, which I used to be, uh, and maybe I still am kind of, if, you, if you're the kind of Christian that just loves reading the New Testament and not so much the Old Testament, it's really hard to find verses in there about beauty. I mean, there are a few verses sprinkled in there, but it's really hard to find verses about beauty. And that's because the New Testament, the way that they write, is not really an artistic way. Like in the Old Testament, you have like Psalms, which is poetry, right? You have Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and stuff like that. And even the way that they talk about God, they don't say God is good in the Old Testament. They say that God is like a, you know, like a strong tower. Like God is a rock, you know, God, so they use imagery. So it's easier to find it, like beauty language in the Old Testament. But what does the Bible mean by beauty? 
Well, in order to figure that part out, I want to introduce you guys to two characters in the Old Testament. If you don't know who these two are, don't worry, because I would, I would bet most Christians don't know who these people are. They are Bazelel and Oholiab. You guys know who these people are? <laughs> okay, they're important because they're the first two people in the Bible that's described as somebody who was filled by the Spirit. You know, you hear a lot of Christians talking about, oh, that person's filled with the Spirit. These are the first two people in the Bible that we read about that were filled with the Spirit. And where are they mentioned? Well, they're mentioned in the book of Exodus, chapter 31. Here's the context. Moses, God through Moses brought all these slaves out of Egypt and they're in the middle of the desert. They're on their way to the promised land. And on the way there, people start bickering, like, hey, we want food. And God's like, okay, here's food. Hey, we want shade. Well, here's shade. And they're like, well, we want, how do we know that you're always with us because you're invisible? And so God's like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to create this thing called a tabernacle tent. And every time you come out of your tent in the morning, you see God's tent in the middle of the campground, you're going to be like, oh, God is still with us. So God assigns these two guys to build the tent. Let's take a look. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have chosen Bazalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. There it is. This is the first time that this is mentioned. With wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills. And then, next, next verse, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. God is saying, I have an important job for you guys in the middle of the desert. I want you to use your artistic ability and make something beautiful. What about the other guy? He's in the next verse. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab to make everything I have commanded you. And now he goes into the description of what God wants him to create. The tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, the ark of the covenant, law with the atonement, co atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent. It's like, is that all? It's like, no, there's more. He wants to make a table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense. We're not done yet. There's more. The altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin with its stand and also the woven garment, meaning for people who go into this tent, there's a certain uniform you have to wear. I want you to design that too. That's not it though. Here it is more. Both of the uh, sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests in the anointing oil and fragrant incense of the holy place. What is God talking about here? He's saying people need a physical manifestation of God because they're wondering where God is. So I'm going to make this tent. I'm going to assign you two to build this tent. This is an artist's rendering of what it might look like. There's an entrance here. There's like a wall around. He's like, I want you to decorate this whole thing. And when you walk into the main tent, next slide, you'll see that the walls are made with gold or at least covered in gold. And these pillars in the back are also gold. And the curtain back here is decorated with angel depictions. And, you know, and so like, I want you to do all that. There's pillars of gold. There's incense. I want you to make sure that you get the incense exactly right. And the fabric with specific designs, I'll tell you how thick it needs to be and everything. And then he talks about the accessories. Like you see this table right here? That's, oh, there, you go to the next one. <clears throat> yeah, that's cool. Right. So like this, this is like the, the, here, this is the, the, the it's called a showbread table. This is a table that's created just to put bread on it. It's plated in gold, <laughs> right? That up there on the top left, that's the Ark of the Covenant. Like this is where you're gonna, this is gonna be the physical object that's gonna represent me. And the top lid, he has instructions on exactly how to make that top lid. I want you to make it with gold. 
Now, I want you to keep in mind, okay, because they're in the middle of a desert here. And you would think that the most important thing to God in the middle of a desert is survival. But to God, beauty is just as important. In other words, to God, creating beauty is as important as survival. Beauty is what makes us human. You see, when we look at certain objects, we start thinking about, oh, how can I use this for my good, right? How can I use my education to get me further in life? How can I use this table for more than one use, right? We think about it in pragmatic terms, right? But what we discover in the Bible is that God, next slide, God values beauty as much as pragmatic uses of it. So, you know, I'll give an example. This is one day where I was in seminary, and because seminary is in grad school, we were invited to join the students in the undergrad department, people who are majored in Bible and theology. And I would show up, and we would be like TAs to them and everything. And one day, um, the student that I was overseeing, I overheard him talking to his professor. And the question was, if I become a Bible major, okay, if I study the Bible and this is what I want to graduate with a degree in, does that pay well? It's like my mom and my dad, they want to know, does this lead to a good career? And I remember what my professor said. He said, what if we just go to college and learn just for the sake of learning? But in our minds, we think about, well, what does this lead to? What is the pragmatic use of this? What is the utility of this? You should build some relationship in college. Why? Well, because when you have connections, you might get a better job. And that's true, right? But what if we just built relationships for the sake of relationships? What if we went to school for the sake of just learning? What if we, you know, like, what if we just looked at it as it is meant to be, rather than that being a stepping stone to something else? There's a professor uh, from Calvin College. He's a professor of theology. This is what he said. He said, if we lose the sense of beauty, if you lose the sense of beauty of what God has made, we risk losing the fundamental aspect of our mission in the world. What he's talking about here is when we come to Jesus, and I don't know what your story is and how you came to Jesus, but he says, I'm really concerned because people who come to Jesus, they're all thinking about, well, what's in it for me? They're thinking about his pragmatic, the, side, the pragmatic side of our faith. Hey, you're telling me that if I come to Jesus, then I'll be blessed? Well, then count me in. You mean if I come to Jesus, then I'm going to go to heaven after I die? Count me in. He's like, well, what if, what if we just focused on Jesus and said, I want to come to Jesus because Jesus is beautiful, because I love Jesus. Don't think about what stepping stone you can use Jesus as, but just to say, Jesus is beautiful, and that's the reason why I'm coming to him. And he says, if we lose the sense of beauty, then we might be missing out on the fundamental aspect of our mission in this world. There's an artist. His name is, oh, here's a picture of him. His name is Makoto Fujimura. And he's a very famous, I don't know if you guys have heard of this guy, he's very famous. He was like the personal artist for George W. Bush. Um, he was born in uh, Massachusetts and he's written many books, he's a Christian. And he wrote this book right here called A Theology of Making Art and Faith, amazing book. But this is what he said about art and beauty. He says this, perhaps the greatest thing we can do as, Christian, as a Christian community is to behold, behold our God, behold his creation. He says, we've lost the art of just looking at something and saying, wow, behold, God. Behold, this is amazing. Just looking at it and just being blown away by something. And he continues, like, I think 
we need to rediscover beauty in order to recover ourselves and recover our humanity. Being able to look at something beautiful and just being in awe of it, he says, is fundamentally a human thing. If we stop looking at beauty, beauty in that way, he says that we're not human anymore. So to be able to be, to, to be able to call Christians a community of people who could look at something beautiful and say, wow, that is just beautiful. I want that to stay in my heart for as long as I can. That, he says, he argues, is what makes humans humans. And maybe the gift that we have to give to the world that we're in is the ability for people to re rediscover their, their beauty, their humanity. And he also says Jesus seems to indicate that beauty is the door into the gospel. Beauty is the door. The way we come to know Jesus is through beauty. Not as pragmatic excuse, not, not by looking at Jesus and saying, so you're telling me if I say yes to Jesus and I get this, this, and this, and that. He says, no, 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 no. We have to come to Jesus because we are so compelled by his beauty that we can't say no anymore. He says, beauty is the door. And then he talks about this Bible story. Makoto Fujimura says, here's a story that really captures the essence of this. This is from Mark chapter 14, verse 3. He says this, while Jesus was in Bethany, a woman came with an alabaster jar of every expensive, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Now, expensive perfume back then was worth like a year's wage, and it's really expensive, and they often held on to it so that they could use it to anoint their husbands on their wedding day. So here comes this woman to Jesus with a jar of a very expensive perfume. Let's see what she does. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head, on Jesus' head. And everyone's like, whoa, what are you doing, man? Like that, you know that's supposed to be, like, if you break that jar now, what you just did, um, you're probably not going to get married. And she's like, I know. I'm doing this. It's not an accident. I'm doing this on purpose. You see, it's implied in this story, in this context, that she knew that Jesus was going to die in a few days. He's going to go to the cross. And she's thinking, how can I bless my Lord Jesus? How can I do this? And she says, here's this one thing that I've been holding on to for my entire life. It's really expensive, and this is all I have. And I'm going to give this to Jesus by breaking it over his head and then letting the perfume pour over his head, and it runs down his face. You know, and it is the ultimate form of a blessing from a woman. And she's like, I'm going to give that to Jesus. And then, this is how people responded. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste uh, why this waste of perfume? Woman, do you know what you're doing? That is such a waste. You know what you just did to your life? You know what the rest of your life is going to be like? Not too good, because in this male-dominated world, you need to be married to somebody, and what you just did is you just kind of scrapped that plan right there. Why are you wasting it? Now, at this point, the, the critics are like, wait a minute, Jesus is sitting here. I, I, I got to be more tactful in the way that I, I, I talk about this. And at that point, these critics are like, wait a minute, I know who Jesus is. Jesus loves the poor. So we'll just make it into a, a feeding the poor kind of thing. So he goes on. It, the, the perfume could have been sold for more than a year's wage and the money given to the poor. Jesus, aren't you on our side? Right? Because you want the poor to be taken care of. So let's rebuke her because she just wasted a whole year's wage, like thousands of dollars in today's day, right? And it says, and they rebuked her harshly. Come on, Jesus, join us in rebuking her because she just did something completely wasteful. Here's Jesus' response. Leave her alone, said Jesus. 
Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. A beautiful thing to me. What, what does Jesus mean by beauty here? She offered something that was the utmost value to her. It's beautiful because this gift is temporary. It's beautiful because this gift is wasteful. It's beautiful because this gift has no other pragmatic use but just to, but to show an affection. Jesus is saying her sacrifice, her tossing her life aside for the sake of showing love to somebody, it's like that is actually beautiful. But if you think about it as pragmatic use, then yes, yes, that was wasteful. But we're not thinking about it that way right now. We're looking at beauty right now. In other words, the people of God do not exist to tell the story of pragmatism and utility. That is not the role of Christianity. It's not our part to say, hey, if you just pray this prayer, then you're going to go to heaven because that's what Jesus is here for. No, beauty is saying, look at how beautiful Jesus is. Look how much he loves you. Look how wasteful he was with his life for your sake. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that something that you've been craving? And so beauty leads our community to reclaim its humanity. You know, a few years ago, I mean, right now we're in a huge drought, but I remember there was like a huge drought like years ago. I guess we never recovered from it, so <laughs> there was a drought years ago. And um, at the time, there was that bucket, cold ice water bucket challenge. You guys know what I'm talking about? For, what was it for? ALS? It was AL ASL? ALL. Well, okay, so you guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, right? And I'm like, dude, that is so wasteful. And I actually, like, in my life group, there were people who were participating, and I'm like, dude, I think that's kind of wasteful. We need the water. But then what I discovered over time is, no, 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 this is meaningful because there's a shortage of water. Now, I'm not saying go waste water, you know, because we're in a crazy drought right now. But there was a beauty to it that I missed the first time because I was thinking more pragmatically. Conserve water where you can, okay? But it's because it's not superficial. It's because it's deep. That's why it's beautiful. I'll, I'll give an example of this. In today's world, and maybe for the past century, I don't know, putting on makeup, getting your nails done, manicure, pedicure, you know, these things make your feet and your hands look beautiful, right? And by the way, I'm not saying anywhere in this sermon that you, you have to stop wearing makeup and stuff like that. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is the way that we define beauty, it cannot be superficial. As people of God, we can't look at beauty as just superficial things. A mother who has bags under her eyes because she's been up all night taking care of the baby that's crying, who lost her figure because of her pregnancy, who gave up her pedicure and manicure because she needed that money to spend for, 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 uh, for formula, you know? When Jesus looks at her and how much she had to give up for the sake of her loving her child, he would say, that's beautiful. Versus somebody's like, I'm not going to change anybody's diaper because I just got my nails done, right? There's a beauty in being able to sacrifice yourself for the sake of somebody else. Or a father who works really hard and his hands are so calloused because with these two hands, he worked day and night to bless the community around him, to, to, to earn enough money so that their family could have great opportunities, so that their kids could go off to college or whatever the story might be. Their hands in today's world may be considered to be ugly hands, but to God, they're beautiful hands because there's sacrifice involved. There's generosity involved. 
sacrifice, generosity, forgiveness. Pragmatically, you could look at forgiveness and say, no, 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 if you forgive the person, you're no longer a victim, you can't use that over that person anymore. So don't forgive the person. As long as that person feels indebted to you, you have control over that person's life. That's finding utility in, in, in somebody wronging you. But God would say, no, 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 no. I find beauty in the person who's giving up all rights to be mad at that person by saying, I forgive you. He finds beauty in that. He finds beauty in loving selflessly. So that is beauty. Okay, so we talked about relationships. We talked about work, order and justice. We talked about wisdom and beauty. God is conducting this orchestra of how you could bless the world. He says, relationships, this is how I want you to play your tune. You know, when it comes to work, this is how I want you to do that. Order and justice, wisdom, beauty. Play your music the way I told you. I already set an example for you guys. Now, once everybody starts playing their part perfectly, the way they want to play it, then you start to hear this beautiful symphony. And the people who are living on the outside listen in and they say, hey, that's something I want to be a part of. And that's what it means to live for the, for the life of the world that we're living in. That's what it means to be in exile as, a, as God's people. Now, the question is this. Have we heard this music before? If I want to know what this tune is supposed to sound like, where can I go? And the answer to that, according to the scriptures, is the church. If you want to know what it looks like for people to have relationships where they're continually emptying themselves to one another, if you want to see an example of a group of people who work, not so that they could get a paycheck, although that's nice, right, but so that the community around them is doing better. If you want to get an idea of what it looks like to have order and justice where every single human being, their value is noticed, nobody's treated less or more because everybody equally has the image of God in them. If you want to see an example of... of of people who are using wisdom, not to inflate their own egos, but to help the people around them. Or if you want to see an example of people who value beauty, because that's what it means to be human. The Bible will argue, then you'll find that in the church. Why? Because the church is called the body of Christ. The body of Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, there's this pattern, there's this theme that's been going on throughout the beginning to the end of the Bible. And I want to give you a little glimpse of what that looks like. So here, let's take a look at Exodus chapter 6. You guys know the story of Moses, right? Moses has to go to the Pharaoh to get the slaves out. Moses isn't feeling too good about that. Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Like, I'm going to go over there and say, let my people go. He's going to be like, yeah, I don't care. Just go away. Like, how, why is he going to listen to me? I'm not eloquent in speech. Please, well, what can I do? Listen carefully what God says to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your people. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. When you speak to Pharaoh with these words, he's going to look at you and think that you're speaking like God. In other words, God, throughout the centuries, has been looking for a body. He's been looking for a representative. He was looking for somebody to be his image bearer. Moses, can you go to Pharaoh and speak the words that I want to speak to him? Because for that moment, you are going to be God to him. And Moses does a great job. But every once in a while, he'll mess up, and he's not representing God the way that he's supposed to. And eventually, Moses dies, and then Joshua takes over, and Joshua is now the embodiment of God. And so he'll say things like, thus saith the Lord, and he'll say something, and they'll be like, you're right, that is from God. 
And then we move on with the story that we, in the book of Judges, we have a whole community who is supposed to be a representation of God to the people around them. And they don't do so good. I mean, in the book of Judges, it's like this. Like, they're doing great, they're doing bad. They're doing great, they're doing bad. But if you look at the overall picture, it's actually going down. It's kind of like your stock right now, right? <laughs> it's, it's like God has been looking for a body, somebody or a group of people who could represent him well. There's King David. God's like, hey, we could use you, King David. We, we want you to be a representative here on earth. He does okay, but the whole Bathsheba thing happens, and he doesn't do so well. So over, the, over and over in the Old Testament, God has been looking for a body. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus says, I am God. If you want to know what the Father is like, if you know me, you already know what he's like. And wherever he went, he emptied himself, relationships, emptied himself so that the people around him could be blessed. And then when he came to work, he, he did everything wholeheartedly to bless the community around him. When it came to justice, he took care of the women who were marginalized. He took care of the people who were a different race. If you were with us in the book of Luke, um, he, he looked at the people who were pushed out by society like tax collectors so that they could be back in the community because they have dignity, they have value, they have worth. And Jesus pointed that out to everybody that he saw that was pushed out of society. Jesus spoke with a lot of wisdom. Jesus always talked about and demonstrated beauty to the people around him by being sacrificial, by being generous. And then Jesus was killed on the cross. And then he rose again. And before he went back to where he came from, he said, here, I'm going to pour myself into the church, and now you are going to be the body of Christ. You, church, are going to be a representation of me. And so if you're, if you're like, okay, Koss, that's a lot of things you, you just threw at us. Can you just give us the bottom line? Here's the bottom line. If you can't remember anything else, but then this is the thing you want you to remember. The church is the body of Christ given as a gift for the life of the world. The church is the body of Christ given as a gift for the life of the world. If the way that God sees the world is this. Look, there's brokenness in that community. You know what I'm going to do? Church. Now, it's going to be better. Something's falling apart over there? Gift. Church. Now you are going to go bless that community. That church, that, that, that community over there is in pain. They're broken. Church. And they're supposed to go, you know, like these people are going to be exiles in your land, but they're there to bless you. They're there to take care of you. They're there to make things, they're there to heal things that's been broken. The church is supposed to have the hope that the world is desperate for. Now, whether if you're living up to that right now or not, that's a different story. But God's original plan for the church is to be that gift that the world needed. And that's you. You are that gift. If you go to work and you're like, hey, there's brokenness here, you are the one that empties yourself out to that person. You are the one that's going to be looking at work a little differently than the way that everybody else is looking at. You're the one that sees beauty in things that, you can't, that people around you don't see. You're the one that's going to see the value and the image of God in the person when the rest of the world doesn't see it in them. So the church, um, theologians talk about this in really abstract terms, but they talk about the church having a very unique place in this world. There's this idea called the here, but not yet. Here, but not yet. What, what the here, but not yet, what that means is this. 
eventually the world is going to be fixed. Jesus is going to come back and the world's going to be the way it ought to be. Shalom is going to reign in this world again. But we're not living in that right now. So the church is a preview of what the world to come is going to be like. That's why the church is the here but not yet. So if you're in this broken world and you're like, I want to get a glimpse of what the world that God's trying to create, you know, what, what he's working towards, somebody should be able to step into a community called the church and look around and say, wow, is this what God's plan for the world is? That's what the church ought to be. Once again, the, um, St- Dr. Stephen Gravel, the, the, the professor who talks about this a lot, this is what he says. The church is the lived memory of God's purposes in the world. If you want to know what the world's supposed to be like, you're supposed to look at the church and be able to figure it out on your own. Next part. He says, the church is called to be the very embodiment of the hope of the kingdom of kingdom to come. We are the body of Christ in the world. We are the, supposed to be the people that's supposed to bring hope to the world. And the question is, are we really doing that? I'll tell you this right now. If you build up walls around you so that the people from the outside can't influence the people on the inside, you will definitely not be able to bless the world that you're in. As exiles, we're called to love on the people. We're called to bless the people, even if those people are called enemies. So what can we do? Is this church a blessing to our community? Are you at work in your classrooms, in your dorm, wherever you are right now, Are you a blessing to the people who don't agree with you on any of the things that you believe in? Are the people around you looking at you thinking, you know, I don't believe in your Jesus stuff, but man, they sure know how to take care of women. They sure know how to take care of people of of African-American descent. You, church, I don't believe in your theology and stuff like that, but, but you sure know how to find the beauty in things that people can't find beauty in. I don't believe in your stuff, but I sure want my daughter to marry one of you guys because you guys know how to take care of other people. You guys know what commitment means. You guys don't run away from problems, but you actually deal with it. Did you know that in the first century church, uh, there's a theologian, a biblical scholar, his name is uh, Scott McKnight. He wrote this amazing book about you know, what church ought to be like. And then he goes into this one chapter. He talks about what the first century church looked like. And in that first century church, he said that if you were to walk into this church, which were smaller than this, usually there's probably like 12 people in a group inside of somebody's house. If you were a visitor from the outside and you walked into a church in Rome, you will look around and say, hey, there's a Jew and a Gentile in the same room. What? And there's a master and a slave, and they're acting like they're equals. Wait, what's going on here? Like, and women are treated just the same as men. Oh, what, 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 what? You know, right? He, he, he uh, talked to the archaeologist, and he discovered that the first century church was a very, very unique community. And when people walked into it, they couldn't help but notice the beauty of God in it and say, wow, if this is what God's vision of the world is, sign me up. That's what the church was. And as you guys know, one of the best ways for them to demonstrate that was by sharing a meal, because sharing a meal was one of the most important things that people could do. It's one of the most intimate things that you could do. And eventually, that practice of sharing a meal together was ritualized, and it became what we like to call communion, or the Eucharist. And so today, as we're closing off this series, we're going to take communion together. And if you haven't gotten yours yet, you can walk over there and get it. But you also have like a wipe in case you don't feel like it's safe. Oh, it's actually just, you break it open, then you wash your hands with it. So today, as we take communion, Uh, I want to remind us what this really means. 
Jesus broke his body, spilt blood for the life of the world so that we could share this with one another without indifference. That when we look at each other, we don't see the differences, but what we do see is the image of God in them. And so for people who participate in communion, you are agreeing to the fact that we are here to bless the world that we disagree with. We are here to recognize beauty when most people don't see it. We're here to empty ourselves for the people around us. We're here to use our wisdom not to complete ourselves, but to help the people around us. That we're here to work not just for our own well-being, but for the well-being of the people around us. By taking these communion elements, we are agreeing to be the body of Christ. So here's a few verses from Paul as he explains what this means. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you take the first layer off, you'll see your little cracker there. Okay, I took the wrong layer off. I think this is going to take longer than I thought because I think I did it wrong. No, I'll pretend like I'm eating this, okay? <laughs> you, but you guys can eat it for real. So go ahead, eat the, the wafer. <laughs> eat it in remembrance of the broken body of Jesus. Paul continues. He says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant means we're no longer bound by the things in the Bible that separates us from the world, that Jesus came for all. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Let's pray.